couple of years ago, I was given as a gift for Christmas a calendar. And the name of the calendar was the Worst Case Scenario Daily Calendar. And what happened on the calendar was every day you would turn it and there would be advice about what you should do if you find yourself in the worst case scenario. Now there were all kinds of different um, scenarios that they would lay out there. There were all kinds of different things that they would put. Uh, I remember one was about how to fend off a shark attack. In case you ever need that information, I've got that somewhere in my office if you need it. There was information about how to survive a nuclear attack. There were all those kind of things. And there was one in particular that caught my attention. And I thought I'd share that with you, just take a moment to help you out this morning in case you ever find yourself in this situation. It was how to survive an attack by an anaconda. Now, I know that anacondas aren't native to West Tennessee. I haven't lived in Middle Tennessee long enough to figure out if they're native here. But if you find yourself in the midst of an anaconda attack, here is what you do. First of all, it says, don't run. The snake is faster than you. Here's the second thing. Not only are you not supposed to run, you are supposed to lie flat on the ground, put your arms tight against your side, and your legs tight against each other. You are then to tuck your chin into your chest and allow the snake to begin to nudge and climb over your body. Number five, do not panic. Number six, this is more informational than anything you need to worry about, but it says the snake will begin to swallow your feet first. Lie perfectly still. This step will take a long time. When the snake has reached your knees, reach down, take your knife, slide it into the side of the snake's mouth, between the edge of its mouth and your leg, quickly rip upward, severing the snake's head. Number nine, be sure you have a knife. <laughs> Number ten, make sure the knife is sharp. You know, sometimes we find ourselves in situations that we wonder, how do we get out of this? Sometimes we wonder, how do we get into it? But once we're there, we question, now how do we get out? And last week we talked about being passionately devoted to radical obedience, and we talked about Peter. And I left last week with that part where it says that Peter climbed down out of the boat, he got on the water, and he started walking towards Jesus. And the truth is we learned three things last week about what it means to be radically obedient. It means, first of all, recognizing God's presence. Peter said, if that's you, call me to yourself or let me know. And Jesus says, it is me, come. And Peter, recognizing that divine opportunity, stepped out of the boat. I was having a conversation with one of the members here this week. And on Sunday night we are doing a study on putting on the full armor of God. And it kind of dovetailed with last week and we talked about that there are opportunities we have to talk with people about our faith, to share with people about our church, to share with people about what God is doing in our lives. And I was having a conversation with someone just this week. They said that they were at a store shopping and just began a conversation about church. And in that moment had a conversation about where this person went to church, a little bit about their faith, and had an opportunity to invite them here. Last week we talked about not missing those kind of opportunities, but recognizing God's presence. 
The second thing that we see here is not only that we saw last week, is not only do you recognize God's presence, but then you have to be willing to take risks, to step out, to do something bold, to do something exciting. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that this week. And then the third thing we said, that is if you do that, if you really are radically obedient, it will lead to an adventurous life. Well, this week we're going to look at three more things. If you remember last week, I told you I split this sermon into two different weeks. And we're going to look at, okay, once you get out, once you are obedient and you take that initial step, what happens when things begin to collapse around you? Matthew chapter 14, starting at verse 22 and reading through verse 33 says, Immediately, remember, he just fed the 5,000. Jesus made the disciples get into the boat, go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray, and when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake, and when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter said, tell me to come to you on the water. And Jesus just responds, come. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. Verse 30. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and called him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. As we begin to transition in chapter 14 from Peter walking on the water to the point where he begins to sink, we are kind of in one of those good news, bad news scenarios. You've heard those before. Do you want the good news or the bad news? It was like the... Uh, the, the, the guy I heard that was talking with his buddy one day and says, you know what, I wonder if they have baseball in heaven. They talked about it for just a minute and they said, here's what we'll do. If they have baseball in heaven or they don't, whenever the first one of us dies, we're going to come back and tell the other one. So one day, a, a couple of weeks later, one of the friends passes away unexpectedly. He goes to heaven, he gets there, he sees that there is a baseball game right inside the pearly gates. Talks around, talks to the coaches a little bit, comes says, i got to go tell my friend about it. He comes back, his friend is laying in bed one night, wakes up, there's his friend. He says, whoa, I didn't expect you, so remember I told you I would come back. He said, oh yeah, yeah, is there baseball in heaven? He says, well, I've got good news and bad news for you. Well, which do you want first? Well, I want the good news first. Well, okay, what's the good news? The good news is there is baseball in heaven. All right, well, what's the bad news? You're pitching on Sunday. It's kind of a good news, bad news situation with Peter. He gets out of the boat. He experiences something we have never, any of us ever experienced or will experience. And all of a sudden, he is doing something miraculous, unbelievable, walking towards Jesus when the bad news comes that he realizes he's on the middle of a lake in a storm. And in the midst of that, there are three other things that we have to realize if we're going to be radically obedient to Jesus. And here's the first thing this morning that you need to realize from this text is that radical obedience will involve continually overcoming fear. 
It will involve continually overcoming fear. If you notice in the Scripture, there's not much time between verse 29 when it says that he got out of the boat, walked on water, and came towards Jesus, and verse 30 when it says that in the middle of it, he's beginning to sink. And what happens is, in Scripture, it tells us that he noticed the wind. Verse 29 in the NIV says he, or 30 says he saw the wind. Some translations say for the first time, kind of, he realized the wind. The point is, like I said earlier, the wind was always there. The circumstances were always there. Problems were always there. But for the first time, all of a sudden, he says, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in trouble here. We've been through in the last few months watching our son Luke learn to walk. And that's always an experience, an exciting time. And I remember from both Eli and Luke those first steps. And there's something about when they first start taking those steps. And, and parents, you know this. I used to get mad at my dad when he was in the swimming pool. But what you do is you set him up and you tell him to come to you, come to you, and then you start scooting back a little bit. But what I always remember is those first few times they start taking steps, they take one step, two steps, and when you start stretching it out, there comes one moment when they're walking, when they get about halfway and all of a sudden they realize what they're doing. And it's then that they get wobbly and they fall. What happens here is that Peter is walking on water towards Jesus and suddenly he sees everything and the underlying thing there is in the midst of all that he sees, he suddenly becomes afraid. The truth is if we're going to be followers of Jesus, radically obedient to him, we're going to have to continually squash the fear that will rise in our lives. There's a quote on your handout by Greg Lavoie that I love, and it says that Jesus promised those who would follow him only three things. That they would be absurdly happy, entirely fearless, and always in trouble. Now, can you imagine that being the slogan for a church? Come to our church where you'll be completely happy, where you'll be entirely fearless, and when you'll always be in trouble. Now the truth is, I've been in a lot of churches where people are always in trouble, but it's not necessarily because they're following Jesus. And what Scripture says to us over and over again, if we are going to follow Him, it will not be a clean, comfortable life. In Scripture, Jesus would say to His disciples, when the world hates you, remember that they hated me first. And if you look throughout Scripture, it is the people that we celebrate the most that oftentimes got in the biggest trouble. Remember Joseph in the book of Genesis? You talk about a good news, bad news kind of guy. Good news, here's a coat of many colors. Bad news, your brothers hate you so much they throw you in a pit. Good news, you got picked up out of the pit. You got put in the the house of the ruler of Egypt or one of the rulers of Egypt because of of how faithful you've been and good you are. Here's the bad news. His wife falsely accuses you and you get thrown in jail. But here's the good news. You're in jail and you meet somebody and and you talk through some things and and he realizes you have a gift and he goes to the the king and says, Hey, listen, Pharaoh, that, that... Uh, when I get to him, I'm going to promise you, Joseph, that I will tell him about you. And the guy gets out of jail, goes and serves the Pharaoh, and forgets you about you completely. Entirely throughout his life, Joseph, step by step, would say, here I'm following God with all my heart, and all it seemed to lead to was a pit 
and false accusation and the prison. Think about Moses. Moses finally realizes who he is in his heritage and he follows God and tries to get away with an Egyptian that's being overly aggressive and abusive. Gives out some things and as a result he's sent into the desert. And he follows God completely and comes back to Pharaoh and, and now he's there. The, all the plagues come and Pharaoh still won't let the people go and finally he does and Scripture tells us he gets to the Red Sea and he's literally caught between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army. Every time he followed God, he got in trouble. David is anointed king and he goes out into the land and it says that he went from cave to cave trying to get away from the king who was out to kill him. Elijah was chased so much by the king that he got to the point of complete discouragement and depression. And then if you look at our Savior himself, Jesus, a man that followed the will of God completely, it led him straight to a cross. You see, if you look at the lives of the people that have followed Jesus over and over again and that have followed God with all their heart, it always seems that they end up in places of danger. And if you're going to be radically obedient to Him, you're going to have to continually overcome fear. I read this week a passage out of Hebrews 11 that was just striking to me, that I've read many times, but again this week just struck me with what it has to say. You know Hebrews 11, if you've studied the Scripture, is the list of all the faithful people. And it comes in verse 32 through 40 to say, listen, I don't have time to give you everybody. I can't tell you about Gideon or Barak or Samson or Jephthah or David or Samuel or any of those. I can't tell you about the people that conquered kingdoms, administered justice or gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, or escaped the edge of the sword whose weakness was turned into strength, who became powerful and bound at battle and routed foreign enemies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. But others, faithful followers of Jesus, were tortured and refused to be released. Some faced jeers and flogging. Others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death. They went about in sheepskin and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. This world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. They were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what has been promised. You see, in America, we've got this idea that following Jesus ought to lead to a comfy, cozy, satisfying lifestyle. And the truth is, following Jesus is one of the most dangerous things you can do in our world. There's this myth out there in, in Christian circles, and I've heard it expressed this way, that if you want to be safe, the safest places in the world is the center of God's will. Let me tell you real plainly, the center of God's will is not the safest place on earth. It's just not. And to be real honest with you, if we as a congregation, if you as an individual want to follow Jesus radically obedient to Him, you are going to have to realize that it is not a safe obedience. And if this church is going to move forward and see God do amazing things in our midst, we cannot play it safe. We've got to move forward. Peter gets out on the water. And he's there, and he's looking around, and suddenly he realizes, 
wait a minute, I'm walking on water, I've got all this stuff, this is not a safe place to be, and trouble comes. Now we see in this passage, before that, an interesting thing. We actually see, before Jesus ever calls Peter out on the water, the most common command in Scripture. If you look at verse 27, Jesus said to them, this is when he's walking on the water towards them, and they say, it's a ghost, and Jesus says, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. In Scripture, if you look at it, the most common command in Scripture is do not fear. And what I find interesting about the life of Peter is that on one time, Jesus says, don't be afraid, and he passes the test. He gets out of the boat. But then in another time, he lets fear take him down. I don't know what it is that God has kind of put in your life that you need to do today, but that is being held back because you're not allowing Him through fear to take you places. I don't know if you're a middle-aged man that's here this morning and you've been working at the same job or career for a while now and you feel God tugging at your heart to maybe give up some of that and go in a new direction, but fear of what does that mean for my family? What does that mean for our house? What does that mean for my income? All those fears creep in and you say, I just can't do it. Maybe you're a young woman here today and, and your parents have the course of your life planned out for you and you're wanting to please them and you're wanting to do what they say, but you know in your heart of hearts that's not what you're supposed to to do, and you don't have the courage to step away. Maybe you're a young man here today, and you're in a relationship, and there's talk of marriage. Maybe there's an engagement, and the problem is everybody thinks it's perfect, but you know this is not what God has for your life, but you're worried that everybody else is going to think bad things about you if you don't follow through. Maybe you're an elderly person here today, and while you know as a Christian you shouldn't fear what comes ahead or fear death or fear illness. The truth is, you are scared by it. And it is crippling you as you try to move forward. The most paralyzing emotion that Satan uses against us in our daily walk with the Lord is fear. Yesterday I saw an example of how fear can paralyze you watching my Saturday afternoon Tennessee football game. Yesterday was not considered the high point for Tennessee football. Amen? There was actually a moment during the second half of yesterday's game when I had my phone looking up the Vanderbilt score hoping they would win. Resigned to the fact Tennessee had lost. But here was the difference in that game as I saw it besides the obvious score, is the game started with a coach for Alabama, and if you don't know what these means, just nod like you do, kicked an onside kick on the first play. Risky, bold move. Alabama had a defense that every chance they got, they attacked, they attacked, they attacked. It came to fourth and one. They were in, they, they, it wasn't close to really being a field goal chance, and Alabama had the chance to go for it on fourth and one. They go for it and they get it. Tennessee has a fourth and one down by some points and they decide to kick it away. Tennessee runs their same offense the same way they always do. Tennessee runs the same defense they always do. After the game, I read some quotes from one of our coaches. He was talking about the defense and why they played a certain way. 
And he said, we were scared if we didn't play that way, we'd get beat badly. And I thought, well, what exactly happened yesterday? I'd rather take chances and get beat than get not take chances and get beat. The truth is that fear can paralyze who we are. And when you overcome that fear, God begins to expand your life. Recently, we were in Florida. And Eli and I were down at the swimming pool. And Eli had wanted to snorkel in the swimming pool. We had bought him a snorkel. We had bought him some stuff. And I remember going down there to the pool with him, getting all the garb on, getting it attached so it's not too tight, but it's tight enough, and getting all that together. And him holding my hand as I kind of guided him around the pool. And after about the first day of doing that, we were down there the second day, and he wanted to let go. He was scared. I can tell you he was scared. I was a little scared. But you know what happened when he let go? Before long, he was swimming all over that pool. And I was having to swim and chase after him because I was still scared something was going to happen. But God had expanded his life because he gave up a little of that fear. If you're going to be a radically obedient follower of Jesus, you're going to have to continually overcome fear. Here's the second thing we see. Radical obedience requires stabilizing focus. It requires stabilizing focus. Verse 30 again says, when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. Now, I don't know many of you that that have ever been in a place where you're in water or it feels like you're beginning to drown. Maybe you're a good swimmer, maybe you're not, maybe it's an undertow. I don't know if you've ever been there, but I can imagine that when it says beginning to sink, that is kind of a sanitized version of what was happening. Because I can imagine in the life of Peter, he thought he was going to drown. This wasn't a picture of him walking on water and kind of like quicksand beginning to gradually go down. As soon as he began to notice all the stuff about him, I can see flailing, I can see things happening, I can see treading water, I can see waves being thrown, and it says that as soon as he began to sink, he refocused where he needed to. I mean, if you're in a sinking place, crying out to the one that's walking on top of it is probably a pretty good sign. And it says in Scripture that beginning to sink, He cried out, Lord, save me. You know, the reality is that if we are going to be radically obedient to Jesus, we're going to step out on faith and we're going to do some things. And in the midst of that, we are going to fail at times. It's not a question of whether you will or you will not fail. The real question is how do you respond when that failure comes? There's a quote on your handout from Herman Melville, the writer of Moby Dick, that says, He who has never failed somewhere... That man cannot be great. Failure is the test of greatness. Now, Herman Melville is a well-respected man, and I I love that quote. I put it on there. But to, to further that quote, I think it would be better to say your response to failure is the test of greatness. You see, Peter begins to sink. He begins to flail. And he says, the only place I can find rescue is in my Savior. 
the lesson that he teaches us here is that focus is of ultimate priority. In your life, what are you focusing on? Are you focusing on all of the difficulties you're having? Are you focusing on all of the problems that are there? Are you focusing on all of the things that can't be done? Are you focusing on what God intends for you to do? I read this week a story of what Jimmy Johnson did before one of the Super Bowls he coached. He was coach of the Dallas Cowboys, and it said that as he was in the locker room with them, he took a two-by-four and he laid it out on the floor. And he said, if I were to ask each and every one of you in this room to walk across that two-by-four, not a single one of you would fall off of it walking across. He said, but if I were to take that two-by-four and put it 20 stories up with nothing underneath it, First of all, you wouldn't do it. Second of all, only about half of you would make it. He said, what's the difference there? He said, the difference is when you're walking on the floor, you're focused on walking. When you're walking 20 stories up, you're focused on everything else. He said, when you go out to play this afternoon, there are going to be a crowd you've never seen. There will be cameras you can't imagine. There will be stuff all around you. And if you focus on all of that stuff, we're not going to win the game. But if you go out there and do the things you've done all week in practice we'll win this game. I think they won 52 to 10. They focused in the right direction. I mean, it's real simple. It says that when Peter focused on Jesus, he walked on water. But when Peter focused on the wind, he sank. What are you focusing on? Most of you remember Hurricane Katrina that happened just a couple of years ago. I had the opportunity not long after Hurricane Katrina to fly down with my father-in-law. and uh, My father-in-law and mother-in-law are here today. We were excited to have them here this weekend. I got to fly down with my father-in-law and a few other people, and we flew down to that area and just took a tour of the area, and the devastation was unbelievable. Chicago Tribune ran a story about several churches that had been scattered by the storm. And one of them was White Dove Fellowship International Outreach Center, and the pastor was a guy named Michael Mill. His church normally had over 3,000 in attendance, but on the first service after the hurricane, there were only 300 people there. And during an emotional sermon, Reverend Mill offered a unique perspective on the tragedy and how it affected us. He says, we have successfully planted people all over the United States. Then he said this. You know, we used to sing that Jesus is all we need, but you know now he's all we've got. And Peter, in the midst of that moment, in the midst of his failure, in the midst of his seeing the wind and beginning to fall, realized that Jesus was all he had. And I don't know if you've ever come to that point, I can guarantee you this. Everybody in this room at some point in your life will come to a moment when Jesus is all you've got. When your money, whatever you have, won't be important. When friends won't mean that much to you. When family even will fade into the background because it is a moment that is so terrible or so inviting or so scary that all you have just a moment, we're going to sing an invitation song after we finish the sermon. That's one of my favorite songs. And I love that line in there that says, 
Turn your eyes on Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Where's your focus? You see, the truth is, as Christians, and the truth is for Peter, that he knew in the midst of everything he was going through, the only thing that he had to hold on to was the hope. And hope is the fuel that fires us, that gives us life. Hope is the fuel that drives us in the midst of failure, realizing that Jesus has made it possible for our failures not to be final and that we can move forward with Him. We see in this passage of Scripture that radical obedience means overcoming our fear. We also see in this passage of Scripture that radical obedience requires stabilizing focus in the midst of our difficulties when everything begins to crowd around us. Here's the last thing we see. Radical obedience always leads to intimacy with God. Verse 30. When he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sing, cried, Lord, save me. And I love verse 31. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him and said, You of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. There are a couple of things that I notice about that passage of Scripture. Just a couple of interesting things. First of all, I notice that they walk back to the boat together. Now, we focus on Peter getting out of the boat and walking toward Jesus. We focus on him sinking. We don't focus on the fact that not only did Jesus and Peter walk on the water separately, Scripture seems to suggest that Peter got to walk on the water side by side with Jesus. Now, one of the reasons that's important is as Jesus is walking back and Peter is again walking on water, as he's doing that, he is right there beside the very person that has rescued him. And it is a beautiful picture of those moments when we come to Jesus and say, Listen, I have fallen in this area. I have given up in this area. I have made a mistake in this area. Jesus, would you come and help me? And it says that Jesus picks us up, that He delivers us from that. But Scripture says He doesn't just pick us up and say, Now go on your way. Scripture teaches over and over again that He picks us up and He walks with us through it. In that famous psalm, Psalm 23, when it says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Jesus is getting ready to leave the earth. He tells him to fear not. Why? For I am with you. Over and over again. We know that when we step out in obedience, what happens is that sometimes, even in the midst of failure, Jesus picks us up and we have intimacy with Him. We understand Him better. We get to know Him more. And in the midst of that, all that flows out of our lives is worship. He gets back into the boat with Peter. Now you can imagine that those guys had all kinds of questions. I mean, they were spectators. You know they probably want to go, Peter, tell us about it. What was it like? But in the midst of that, what they first see is that this is the Son of God. We have chosen the very Messiah that we are following. And when Jesus gets back in the boat, they don't think about asking questions. They don't think about trying to get Peter for all the information. They don't even ask Jesus how we got there. The first thing that they do is they bow and they worship Him saying, You are the Son of God. 
when God allows you to have an opportunity to follow Him and you step out in faith and radical obedience to Him, one of the things that will always happen is your picture of how big God is will expand and your love and desire to worship Him will grow. And in the midst of all of that, your life will become more passionately devoted to Him than it has ever been. It says here in Scripture that they got back into the boat they worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. As I was studying for this sermon over the last couple of weeks, I read over and again the stories of men or women who were challenged to live for God and the way that they obeyed and all of these stories of radical obedience. And the thing that came over and over again in my mind is the reason they sound so spectacular is because it's so uncommon. And in the midst of all of that study, I was reminded again of a guy named Watchman Nee. I don't know if you've ever heard of Watchman Nee or not. He is an author. He was uh, spent a lot of his life in China and scripture, or in, uh, in teaching the scripture and writing about the scripture. And he was a guy that was saved as a fairly young teenager, and within a year of his salvation, at 14, began to start churches. Now he's an amazing story because by the time he was 30 he had planted or been personally responsible for or indirectly responsible for 2,300 churches being planted. And as all of this began to happen, suddenly his name began to get on the lips of those that were not uh, glad about Christianity in China, and he was actually arrested for being a Christian. They brought him to court and they put him there and they read out every word of the indictment. The indictment of him being a Christian was 2,267 pages long. As he sat and they read every page of the indictment, all 2,267 pages, they finished and they said, Watchman, do you have anything to say for yourself? And he said, all that you have read is true and there's a bunch of stuff you didn't put in there. He was given 15 years in prison for being a Christian and propagating the gospel. While he was in prison, he had 15,000 pages written, or 69 volumes. But he had one little problem. He couldn't get it out of the jail. So Watchman came up with a plan. He was going to start witnessing to the guards, and they would be his delivery people. First time he decided to do this, it took him a week. And at the end of the week, the guard became a Christian and watchman told him to take the papers and not show up for work again the next day. And he didn't. The people at the prison didn't know what was going on, so they put another guard there. And a week later, he didn't show up for work. They did it again. A week later, he didn't show up for work. And they said, we must start changing guards every five days. They told the guards, you're going to be his guard for five days. And on the fifth day, he didn't show up for work. Next week, the guard on the fifth day didn't show up for work. They said, well, we've got to do something else. So they were going to let him be three days. On the third day, the guard didn't show up for work. They eventually got down where they were going to change guards every day. And for 17 straight days, the guard didn't show up for work. They figured out what was going, and Watchman was writing all of this stuff. And so they took Watchman. And they took him out, out into the courtyard of the prison. They gathered all the prisoners around because Watchman was not only witnessing to the guards, he was witnessing to everyone that was there. 
And they decided that the best way to stop his writing was to stop his ability to write. And so they beat him. They tied up his legs. And they forced him down on top of a stump there in the guard, in the guard's court outside. They took his arms and they tied them down to that stump. They took an axe and they cut off both of his arms at the elbows. When they had finished, they untied his arms. Watchmen, weary from the blood loss and the beating that had happened, gradually raised up. He took himself and, as with all of his might, got up on top of the stump. He looked at the guards in the face. He raised his bloody nubs to the sky and he said, I am thankful to God that he has chosen me to suffer for him. Praise be to God. people that write about it said that prison was never the same. You see, it is real easy for us to talk about radical obedience sitting in a somewhat cool sanctuary on a Sunday morning in the middle of Tennessee where we don't ever have consequences for following Jesus like that. The question for you is, will you be radically obedient to Jesus no matter what that means when he calls bow with me this morning. Lord, we come this morning realizing that in many ways, many of us in this room have not seen kind of adventurous life that you have for us, mainly, Lord, because we haven't been willing to step out of our boat and to follow you, Lord. Or in the midst of that, sometimes we step out, but everything just crowds around us and we think, maybe I made the wrong decision. Instead of focusing on you, we focus on everything else. And, Lord, we just sink. This morning, Lord, as we are gathered here, I know that you desire for this church to do things, Lord, to see things happen that would blow us away. Lord, that you desire to do more than we can ask or imagine in our midst and in our lives. And Lord, I know that this morning there are some people in this congregation that as they sit here and they listen, there is something in their heart they know they're supposed to be doing, but you have not been followed completely in their lives. Lord, they've let fear or the enemy dissuade them from doing it. And this morning, you are calling again to them to get out of the boat and come. Lord, my prayer is this morning that you would give us the courage, the ability to break through those strongholds and those fears and to follow you completely. Lord, this morning there may be some people that have never accepted you as Savior. Lord, and they have focused on all of the wrong things, all of the stuff around them, all of the stuff that's going on in their lives. Lord, and they have never focused on you. And Lord, this morning they have come to the point where they say, it is time for me 
to give my life to Jesus, to follow Him, whatever that means. This morning, Lord, I pray that You would give them the courage to find those answers and to come. Lord, I know there may be some people here this morning they are looking for a place where they can plug in and they can follow You completely and they can be people that will passionately seek after You. And Lord, that You are calling them to join this church and to begin to walk with us as we see the exciting things you have for us in the future. Lord, I pray that you would give them the courage. Oh Lord, I know there are a lot of people here this morning that are members of this church. Some have been members for a long time and some have joined fairly recently. And this morning, Lord, what you're saying is it is time to be passionately devoted, radically obedient to your plan for this place. And Lord, maybe there's been some fear. Well, I don't know what that will mean, and I don't know where that will take us, and I don't know how that will look, and all of that. But Lord, this morning you're calling them to say, whatever that means, I'm here. Or maybe this morning they just need to, to come to this altar and to, to pray that prayer of commitment to you. Lord, maybe they need just to come and, and as a sign of dedication and openness, Lord, that they're going to get out of their boat and to follow you completely, Lord, that they're going to come this morning to show that in this place. Lord, my prayer is this morning that we would be obedient people. No matter what name I pray. Amen. We're going to stand and we're going to sing. And this morning as we do that,